Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for being here. So great to have you with us today. This was a program we intended to do months ago. And we're glad we were able to reschedule it when a last minute conflict emerged on the topic of women's sexual assertiveness and exploration of Talmudic perspectives with really just a master educator here um, that we get to learn from today. And um, I have the honor of, of introducing her. Rabbi Sarit Horwitz is the rabbi of Beth Shalom Synagogue in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, a synagogue I had the, the great pleasure of visiting last year, which was just a delightful community. They're very lucky to have her. She was ordained by the Jewish Theological Seminary, was a Marshall T. Meyer Rabbinic Fellow at B'nai Jeshurun in New York City, and a Wexner Graduate Fellow. Um, Rabbi Sarit is just a master pastor, um, a deep and sophisticated educator, and just a wonderful person. And so it's it's an honor to welcome here to Valley Beit Midrash. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here, and I'm I'm so grateful that all of you are here to learn with me and that I'll have the opportunity to learn from you. So thanks for joining. I want to share a little bit about how I got to our session today. Um, I fell in love with learning Talmud about 20 years ago and um, really tried to absorb as much as I could of what the rabbis wrote um, and fell in love with their writing. And I realized um, I wanted to learn more about not just what the rabbis wrote, but who the rabbis were and about their lives and how that may have influenced what they wrote. Um, and so I started looking at the relationships that these rabbis had with their wives. And I thought those relationships with their, with their partners are the most intimate relationships that they have. That was my thought. I may have been wrong. Um, and the most, um, real about who they are as people. And it gave, I thought it would give us the greatest window into how they think, how they act as people. And I kind of arrived at this. Now, the first, the first thing that I want to kind of talk about is a rabbinic conception of masculinity. Because the rabbis here throughout the Talmud, throughout rabbinic literature, are crafting a view of masculinity that is actually really different than the way that um, our popular culture understands masculinity. If you looked to, you know, the broader world, if you look at TV or sports, right, these days, you would get um, a, a vision of masculinity that is um, probably, that is quite right, macho and big and strong and physically assertive and physically capable, um, probably someone with some heightened um, sexual tendencies and behaviors. And the rabbis are trying to create a different understanding of what masculinity looks like. Their version of masculinity is um, one that is intellectual, one that is centered on the Beit Midrash, that is about learning and hunched over books. And it's a totally different understanding of what it means to be a man in their worldview. I think in a lot of ways, this is really in stark contrast to, like I said, what we see in our culture, but also what you could imagine as a Roman view of masculinity that 
affected the the greater cultural milieu that the rabbis were operating in. Um, if you're interested in more of that, a lot of the work of Daniel Boyarin um, focuses in that realm of unheroic contact and carnal Israel um, and really um, digs deep into the way that the rabbis conceive of masculinity. At the same time, the rabbis um, construct a world of intense control. There are rules, as you know, that relate to every element of life. Of course, Shabbat and Kashrut and um, what you wear and how often you pray and the times of when you daven and things like that, they regulate every element of life. So sex and sexuality were, were naturally a part of the control that they wanted to create. But the rabbis felt some sense of conflict over this because they know that they they can have ultimate control over women and their sexuality. It's not just about them and their behavior. There's another person involved. And given that sexuality wasn't a huge part of their masculine identity, I think there is a sense of fear from the rabbis of the seductiveness that they see women having, that they perceive that women have a sense of seductiveness. They also don't want to outlaw it. And we're going to, this is what we're going to explore today. They're stuck in this place of dueling views of um, maybe they actually benefit from the seductiveness that women, that they perceive women portraying. And they're also a little bit fearful of it. This leads them to craft some narratives about women and sex and their experiences with women in this realm. We're going to look at three of these stories today. These three stories portray women who are assertive, who take control, um, that really want to make their own decisions about their sexual lives and their sexual behavior with their husband. So I want to be clear about the confines of what we're talking about, right? They're in, it's a sexual relationship with their husband. And so I want you to think a few things in the back of your head as we're learning these stories together. And if you have questions, I want to encourage you to put them in the chat. Um, is there a chat, Alex? Okay, great. Thank you. So I want to encourage you, you can put some um, questions in the chat if you if they come up. And of course, we'll take some, some questions towards the end. So I want you to think about how men react in these stories to the decisions that women are making, that they portray. I want you to think about how the rabbis portray women in these stories and how they try and regulate what these women do. And I also want you to think about what these stories might say about the men who wrote them. Because whenever I'm studying a Talmudic text, I always then step, have to step back afterwards and say to myself, I want to remember that this is a piece of literature that was written by people really devoted to this project, what might it say about them, right? That they put these stories together. What was their, what was important to them? What were their values that this is the story that they decided to tell? So I think I went through the first and the second. Great. Okay. So here, our first story is from um, um, the Tractate of Kiddushin, which holds a lot of stories about women. Um, about women and their relationships with men. So I'm going to um, read through part of the story and then talk about it a little bit. And then we'll go to the next slide because this story is over two slides. So I'm going to um, read 
in the English, but of course I have the Aramaic here for anyone that wants to follow along in the Aramaic. It was Rabbi Chia Bar-Ashi's custom, whenever he prostrated himself, to say, may the merciful one save me from the evil inclination. I want to explain. Um, wow, so cool. This is from today's daf. That's awesome. Thank you, Gio. Um, I didn't even know that. I'm not following the daf yomi cycle. Um, so so Rabbi Chia Bar-Ashi is a rabbi, obviously, it says that. And it's saying that whenever he would pray, he would call out a prayer to God to be saved from the evil inclination. Now, the way that the rabbis understand this, the evil inclination is about sexual impulse. So he's saying like, God, keep me from it. Keep me from the sexual impulse. Keep me from acting on my sexual impulse. One day his wife heard him. She overhears his prayer and she says, it's not clear who she says it to, but she says, for many years, he has separated himself from me. So why is he saying this? She's saying, we haven't actually slept together in a really long, long time. So what is he praying for to be kept from this, you know, sexual impulse? One day he's studying in the garden. His wife dressed herself up and continually walked past him. I want to note here that he's studying in the garden. Um, he's not studying in the Beit Midrash. The garden is a bizarre place for him to be studying. The garden is a place, and, and we might come back to this a little bit. The garden is a place where um, illicit things might happen. And the garden is a place where mysterious, uncontrolled things happen. And it's not usually where studying happens. But he is studying there. So even before we know anything else about this story, we're kind of, we should be primed to think like, something weird is going to be happening here. And his wife dresses herself up. She masks herself. She makes herself look different. And she walks back and forth, right? She's kind of just in front of him, right? She's making her presence known. He says to her, who are you? She said, I am Haruta and I returned today. She says, I am Haruta. That's the name that she calls herself. And we're, we're going to come back to that in a, in a little bit to unpack that some more. He demanded her services. We are meant to understand from there that um, he treats her like a prostitute um, and that they have sex. She said to him, bring me that pomegranate at the end of that branch. He jumped up and took it and brought it to her. Okay, so we understand they have had this encounter in the garden. Alex, can you go to the next slide? Thank you. Sorry. That scene ends. Okay. So they've, they've finished their business in the garden. Um, and then next scene, when he came home, his wife was firing the oven. So she has um, taken off her disguise and gone back home and she's lit the oven the right in their home for whatever she is baking their their oven their fire so um she lights it up he comes home he rose up and sat in. so immediately when he comes home he goes into the oven she said to him what are you doing he told her that this and this had happened in in the garden with garuta meaning he totally comes clean right and his version of the story is i was learning i was studying in the garden and there was a prostitute there and i solicited her services and i had sex with a prostitute and now i've come home and i am in the oven she says it was me 
she like shakes him and is like, no, it wasn't a prostitute. It was I, it was me, your wife. You slept with your wife. That's actually allowed, remember? Um, he didn't pay attention to her until she gave him the signs, meaning she asked him for that pomegranate, remember, after they've had this sexual encounter together. She has the pomegranate. She he gave it to her. She asked for it. She shows it to him. So this is also someone said reminiscent of Garden of Eden. This is also reminiscent of the Judah and Tamar story, where they sleep together and Tamar, right, has has his um, his staff and his seal that kind of are right the his 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 mark so that it knows that it's him that's exactly what happens here too so she shows him the pomegranate he knows then but he said to her nevertheless my intention was to violate a prohibition so he's like i hear you i guess i didn't do anything wrong but my heart wasn't in the right place so here i am sitting in a burning hot oven that righteous man afflicted himself until he died of that death meaning we're supposed to understand this is the end of their um this is the end of the story right this is how it ends we're meant to understand essentially that he killed himself because of his his shame um his kind of i guess anger and frustration at himself um and his knowledge that he intended to commit such a grave sin now alex do you mind pulling off the screen I'm sorry. Um, I I was before when Alex and I were on. I um, I went to pull out my PowerPoint and it did that thing where it says like updating Microsoft. Please wait, you know, and it never. So thank you, Alex. Um, so I want to uh, unpack this story a little bit, and I I like to just be able to see you while I'm talking as opposed to staring at at a PowerPoint screen. So thank you. So I want to pull out a couple of bits from this story. So one of the things that I think is interesting is that. Um, her intentions in this story aren't exactly clear. It's not clear. Is she trying to test her husband and be like, would he sleep with a prostitute? Right? Remember, she does this because she heard him uttering this prayer. She heard him saying, like, please, God, keep me from acting on my Yetzirah. Keep me from, like, like, doing sexually illicit things. And so, you know, we don't get a window into why she makes the decision that she did for all she knows maybe he's sleeping with a lot of prostitutes and that's why she's that's why he's uttering the prayer she doesn't know so she dresses up so is it that she's trying to test him to see if that's what he does or is she actually trying to do anything she can to have sex with her husband right because her reaction to him is like i can't believe you're uttering that prayer because we haven't had sex in a long time so why are you so worried about being like, clearly you don't need God to help you, like, you know, from using your, your impulses. So is that about her just like wanting to have sex with him? And she's like, I'm going to do whatever it takes. Or is she trying to test him? We don't know the answer to that, but we know that she is successful in that. And there's, you know, one of the interesting things about this story, and I said, I'd come back to this is about her name because she calls herself Haruta, which means freedom. And right, it's right, Pesach, right, Zman Chayrutenu, the time of our freedom. You can hear that word. So she is, um, she's using that word to about herself. That's the name that she uses for herself. We have to read into that. It's begging for us to read into that. The word Charuta is actually a loan word from um, Syriac Christian literature. In that context, it means a woman who abstains from sex. And she's using it there to say how her husband has 
denied her, right? So it's kind of an interesting play in borrowing that word. Um, there's one scholar that says the Talmud's use of this word that references the Christian values of abstinence is mocking the ideal that it upholds, meaning in this story, there's also a polemic against the Christian idea of abstinence, because as we know, that's not a Jewish value, right? In the context of a certain type of relationship, sex is beautiful in Judaism. And so there's there's one take that this is actually in her using that word, mocking um, that, that Christian view. But there's another thing about the Cheruta being as freedom is that she is the one, she thinks, that will set him free. Um, she is the one that can allow him to channel those sexual urges, the ones that he's trying to fight against, but to do it in a permitted way. She's like, no, like we are allowed to do this. You don't have to dive into God that you are not right to not do this. Like we can do it and it's healthy and celebrated. Um, and yet it's still so challenging for him, right? That's what leads him to, um, to his death. The last scene of the story, right? He le he returns home. She's already there. She's heating up the oven. He's filled, filled with guilt and he climbs in. And she tells him that it was her, but he's unsatisfied and he tortured himself because of it. And one of the things that I find so interesting, and this is going to be a thread throughout the three stories that we look at today, is that she's not condemned. The rabbis don't end the story um, chastising her, right? There's no, um, it's not saying she did the wrong thing. Um, they just tell the story and the rabbis don't withhold chastising people if they want to, right? Like if they wanted to say that she was wrong, they would. And one of the things that I'm most curious about in all of these texts is the rabbi's refusal to do that. And so, you know, I want to think about what kind of claim the rabbis are making here. I think I think there are a lot of different ways to look at it. And if you have um, other views or things that you want to add, please um, include them in the chat. So, um, you know, one of, one of the claims or questions that I think they're bringing is, can a man be a strong Torah scholar and also be sexually active? I started by talking about this view of masculinity that the rabbis are creating of an intellectual hunched over books, hours pouring in the Beit Midrash studying our holy texts. And the question is, can you be that and also be in a strong physical relationship, intimate relationship with your wife? Um, and I think the rabbis, and there are many stories that kind of reference this struggle that the rabbis have. Um, and another question is, can a woman exert herself sexually in a marriage you know do they hyperbolize her character um to say that anytime she does it it's seductive and it's a little bit out of the bounds of normal behavior like is that something that they think a wife is allowed to do or not but like i said they don't condemn her um i talked a little bit about the garden right is and it's interesting because deliberately it's not the home right he's not studying at home which is where the realm of the wife and he's not studying in the baby midrash, which is the realm of learning and torah but he's studying out in the garden which is a place like i said where emotions and tensions run wild and so this is where it plays out that battle like when it gets to the most raw parts of who he is what is going to emerge what is going to win
I think it really exhibits the tension that the rabbis felt between the wives and the baby drash, um, maybe being fearful that their wives wanted more than they were providing for them sexually. And I, I always have to wonder, like, subtly, are they also praising women um, that maybe they wished their wives would exert more agency in ways that they felt unable to do that they felt like a little bit fearful of going to that place of exerting themselves sexually and so they want their wives to embody that because they're not going to um and we can't ignore the fact that he dies at the end of the story so it's hard to know who that's a critique of is that a critique of her and her assertiveness or is that a critique of him and you know the values of how he how he lived his life um so i'm gonna stop there that's the first story the next two stories um are both stories about thank you so much alex are stories about nida the system of um, ritual um purity of women related to their menstrual cycle and anytime the rabbis are talking about nida there is an undercurrent about sex. Um, the scholar Charlotte von Robert reminds us, she writes that anytime the text tells us that a woman is pure or impure, it's really saying, and we have to be reading it as such, I am or I am not sexually permissible to my husband. And so anytime that there's a text that's about Nita, it's also about sex. Um, and a really interesting component, I think at least, about these conversations about Nita is that it's a realm where women are primarily the arbiters of what happens in their bodies, um, right? Like men are the arbiters of so much else of Jewish ritual life. But when it comes to Nita and a woman's ritual status around her menstrual cycle, she's the one that says like, I'm either bleeding or I'm not bleeding or I'm clean or I'm not clean. And there are stories, and this is gonna be one of them where women kind of bring their evidence to a rabbi to get some perspective um, about the status, right? The ritual status. But Bye. the first line of, um, the first line of judgment is from the woman herself. And I think that that is a fascinating piece of, um, this element of of um jewish ritual engagement and in the marriage and as it relates to sex so here we go this is from the yerushalmi um and um also from ketubo so shmuel is also a rabbi wanted to sleep with his wife she said to him i am impure which again if we go back to uh, professor fran roberts um thing she's also saying i am not permissible to have sex with you right that's really what she's saying she says, I'm impure. The next day, she says, I'm pure, right? Which means I'm. it's permissible for us to have sex. And, and one thing to note here is it doesn't say, and the next day, Shmuel wanted to sleep with his wife. And she responds saying, I'm pure, right? It just says, one night he says to her, I want to sleep with you. And she says, sorry, I'm impure. And, but the next day, it seems like maybe the Talmud is telling us she approached him and said, I'm pure, right? Which... We know what that means. I see some laughs there. I got you, right? I like to think like the rabbis were people. They were people, you know? So, and he says to her, which is exactly the question, right? Yesterday, huh, yesterday you were impure. 
today you're pure, like that is going to raise some eyebrows. She said to him, yesterday, I did not have the same strength as today. I'll leave that. I'll leave that there. He went to ask the matter to Rav, right? So that's another rabbi, right? And Rav and Shmuel are often paired together in the Gemara. So he went to ask Rav, who said to him, if she gave you a plausible reason to her words, which she did, she can be believed. Okay. So this is, this is a fascinating story. Alex, you can pull it down. Thank you. I'm so sorry. On the first, right? On the first day, she's like, sorry, we can't. I'm not ritually pure to you. I'm ritually impure. On the second day, like I said, he doesn't request it. She says it on her own. You know, in reading this, I had to remember, like, there will always be a two-day transition period where one day someone is impure and the next day they are pure. Like, it's always going to be like that. But there is something suspect about, yeah, exactly. This is this is the Gamara's version of I have a headache. You've got that spot on. Um, that is exactly what's happening here. So he goes to the rabbi to ask, and he's told, and I think this is so interesting, if she has a plausible reason, which the Aramaic is an amtala, you can go by her word, right? You can trust her. Now, it's interesting because she did, right? She said... I just wasn't feeling right. I didn't have the strength. And it seems like the rabbis imagine here that she was pure on day one, but she claimed impurity because she didn't want to have sex, right? Which, right, sexual assertiveness, I think in the Gemara, and I think actually anytime, even in contemporary times, can be just as much about denying or refusing right? As well as choosing to have sex. And so I think we have to understand this story in the same way that she's um, taking it, taking matters into her own hands and say, no, I'm actually not going to have sex with you. She uses the halachic framework, which I think is so interesting, right? This system is set up in order to regulate the way that men and women, the timing of when men and women have sex with each other. And she's using that to her advantage to say, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm halakhically not permissible to you right now because I'm impure. Um, even though, and it seems like the rabbis understand it this way, she wasn't telling the truth. But what they say is that if she gave a legitimate reason, then okay, believe her. Right now, someone gets to be the arbiter of what's a legitimate reason or not. Um, but, you know, I think it's a really interesting thing because it means that he trusts that it wasn't the other way around, meaning it wasn't that she was impure legitimately. And then the next day she's still impure, but she's saying she's pure, right? A husband wouldn't dare engage with his wife sexually if he actually thinks that she is impure. So all he can do is take her at her work, right? All he can do then is believe her. And Rav tells Shmuel, right? He tells the husband that she can make these different claims and that's okay. I find this so interesting because I think the rabbis know that real human impulses might come into conflict with their halachic system, but it's a way of them knowing that there is a woman that is going to use the halachic system to feel empowered, right? And to make choices about her life using the language and the framework of that 
to make her own choices when ordinarily she might not feel that kind of power. And I think right in this story, the power shifts so many times, right? It sort of starts out where he's like, I want to have sex with you. Traditionally, then the man has that power. The power shifts completely to her when she says, sorry, impure, right? She then says the next night, I'm pure. And that kind of puts the ball in her court. But then, right, power is back in his hands when he's like, what, like, no, what happened last night? She says that she didn't have the strength. Power is back to him then when he's like, got to check with my rabbi, right? And so the power is volleying back and forth in this story um, between the two of them. And I think it's just an interesting um, way of seeing their dynamic, right? One of the ways I started off was saying like, I want to understand more about these rabbis and who they were and how they, they lived. And I think this, the, the way that power shifts is an interesting way to do that. And, you know, it's interesting to me because a woman would likely have not been able to say, I don't want to tonight, not feeling it, honey, right? That wouldn't have been within like what was acceptable i don't i don't know if i want to say allowed but like socially acceptable in their world so she uses the halakhic framework and she is somewhat subversive excuse me in the way that she says it using this rabbinic legal terminology right i am prohibited to you when she really means i don't want to sleep with you right that's essentially what she's saying and we have to understand that and the text, I think, purposefully ends in a sort of ambiguous way. We don't know if she was lying or not, but we do know that she use, uses the system to her advantage. And the rabbis know that women are going to be the initial arbiters of their purity status. And they can't really work around it because there's no real alternative and they know that it affords the women this type of leeway in making these calls, these decisions for themselves. But I think the text reflects this kind of rabbinic anxiety about women making these decisions for themselves because they know that the women are going to be the arbiters and they know that it affords them the opportunity to make those decisions independently, which is not typically something that the rabbis were super comfortable with. They also don't want to rule against her because they know that typically they have to accept the women's testimony most of the time. And he still wants to sleep with his wife, right? So if that's part of it, like he doesn't want to say like, no, you're wrong. And then she's like, okay, then I guess we won't have sex, right? Like he also wants it. So he, it, they're like really stuck in this hard place of like needing to believe his wife, knowing that she's going to be the one to decide based on her own bodily experience. And they're, and also, wanting to have sex with her um so um yeah i think we're, i think that's where we're gonna stop um for today i see there's a comment um i thought i read that the rabbis advise against female orgasm because women might enjoy it more than their husbands um that's interesting i don't know i think because there are actually also a lot of rabbinic texts about um husbands being required to pleasure their wives sexually um and so um you know, I don't know if it has to do with um, them turning their husbands away. That the, the rabbis don't usually want to think of women as turning their husbands away for sex, right? There's already a limited amount of time because of the system of Nita of when 
men and women can have sex with each other. Um, but they certainly what you're getting at is like this highly regulated system of how and when and under what conditions. And I think all of that is like reflected in their anxiety that they have about this. So this last story um, is also um, about Nida. Um, and this is a story um, about a woman named Yalta. And Yalta, this in this story, it is a moment where she however uncomfortable it might seem to us so we have to like put away our modern conceptions of this so there are still plenty of people that do this so you know she brings her blood to a rabbi um to have it examined because she needs to know does this render me impure or not right which like i said is always going to be a question about can i have sex with my husband right that's the we have to see that as the underpinning to that question so we'll read this story. I'm going to take a sip of water first. Okay. Yalta once presented some blood to Rabbi Barbar Huna, who informed her that it was impure. Okay. So we know from the outset, that means she brought it and he said, you cannot have sex right now. But then she took it to Rav Yitzchak, the son of Rabbi Huda, who told her that it was pure. Okay. She takes it to another rabbi who's like, good to go okay so here it's clear she's like playing the game that my four-year-old tries to play right with me and my husband of like can i have the cookie no okay how do how about i go to another parent can i have the cookie right like she's trying she pins them against each other just like or or really she goes to the first rabbi who gives her the answer that she doesn't want right so then she goes to another one because again we have to understand this i can't hammer this home enough she got the answer that was, no, you can't have sex with her husband. So she goes to another rabbi because she wants a different answer, which tells us what she wants, right? If what she wants is to have sex with her husband, she doesn't want to accept the first rabbi's answer as true. So she's going to take matters into her own hands and go to a different rabbi who might give her a different answer, allowing her to do what she wants. So she does. So the, the Talmud asks, right, exactly this question, but how could he act in this manner, right? How could... How could Rav Yitzchak, the son of Rav Yehuda, do this? Because it was taught, if a sage declared anything impure, his colleague may not declare it pure. If he forbade anything, his colleague may not permit it. Meaning you can't undermine your fellow rabbi by telling them that they can do something, right? You're throwing them under the bus. We've got to be as a united front, right? To make sure that they adhere the laws in the way that we think. They can't think that... They can't keep playing this game, right? Think that they can go to one rabbi instead of another. At first, he, Rav Yitzchak, right? This is the, the one who declared it pure. Um, at first, Rav Yitzchak informed her that it was indeed impure. But when she told him that on every other occasion, Rabbi Barbar Huna had declared for me such blood as pure, and only on this occasion he had a pain in his eye, then Rav Yitzchak, gave her this ruling that it was pure. Okay, I want to stop here for a second before I go to the last line of the story. The way that the Gemara explains it, I find fascinating. Like, it's trying to cover for itself, right? Because the Gemara telling the story is also the same system as the rabbis that they're, like, giving her different answers. They have to cover their tracks. They're like, well, how can this be 
right. We have to give an explanation for this. So the explanation they give is that at first she went to Rav Yitzchak and he was, he gave the same answer as Rabbi Barbar Huna. He's like, yep, not pure, i.e. no sex. But then she said to him, you know, I, I had some blood that's just like this. And I, I actually used to bring it to um, Rabbi Barbar Huna all the time, like exactly the same blood I used to bring it to him. And every time he said that this exact blood was pure. But when I went to him yesterday, he happened to have like a weird thing in his eye and I think he couldn't see properly. So he said that it was impure. And then Rav Yitzchak gave her the ruling that it was pure, right? It seems fascinating to me that um, the Gemara is covering it set for itself in this way based on the kind of scheming, the way that I read it at least, that Yalta does. The last line of this piece says, Rav Yitzchak ben Yehuda relied on his own traditions. Now, I love this as a, a, a coda to this text because the Gemara gives us all that background, right? Of like, well, at first, Rav Yitzchak said it was impure, but all these other times, Rav Huna said it was fine, but this time he had like this thing in his eye and he couldn't see. And it's like, the Gemara does not want to let her or itself, I guess, throw Rav Yitzchak under the bus, right? That he changed his mind because she convinced him. So instead, it ends the text by saying he relied on his own his own traditions, his own ruling, his own understanding to say that it was pure. It wasn't because she convinced him that it was pure. It was because his knowledge, he looked at it, and he made the call for himself. Never mind that she gave the sob story about Rabbi Barbarhuna saying that it was pure every other time. Okay, and that's how the story ends. And presumably then, she is considered pure, which means she can go and have sex with her husband. So, okay, you can pull it down, Alex. I think that was the last, or I don't need the last one if there is another one. That's the last, that's the last of the story. Um, so, okay, so just a little bit more. I see there's um, uh, the question here. If she asked him before and he said it was okay, why did she ask him when the same thing came up again? That's a great question, you know? And I think in part it relates to the lack of empowerment that women felt around these issues um, and the way that like they're actually kind of in this in-between spot of like women are the experts on their own bodies but they weren't the halachic ex experts and this is a place where those two converge and um, like maybe she wasn't trusted right but I, I do think it's a really interesting question like if this exact thing came up before wouldn't you think like well I know exactly how I'm supposed to rule in this case. So I think it's a great, I think it's a great question. And I think it reflects a lot of the anxiety actually about sex um, that the rabbis had of like, can we, can we not? Should we, should we not? Right. Like if, if the rabbis portrayed themselves as um, sex hungry and aggressive in that way, right back to that original thing that I was talking about of masculinity then maybe that wouldn't be where they would go. But if they if they do have some fear of engaging sexually um, and they do have some anxiety about that, like they might almost take a lot of opportunities to be like, wait, should we, should we not, right? And, and that could be, that could be present here also. 
the Gemara, like I said, it understandably asks, like, how could Yalta do this, right? Like, we know that's not okay. Um, and I think it brings that up. Like, she does something that most women in the tractate that has all these stories about Nida and blood don't do. Meaning, she goes to another rabbi to advocate for her position. Um, she knows what she wants, and she's willing to kind of be sneaky, right? She's she's not doing exact like I, I don't know that I would say what she did is like so egregious, but it's certainly sneaky in terms of you know trying to get the answer that you want. Um, she doesn't want the answer of the rabbi to dictate her status. And she puts up a fight because of her desires, because she wants to sleep with her husband. She's willing to to kind of bend the normal protocol of how these things go to get what she wants. Um, right. The last story that we looked at talked about power shifting. And I think that happens in this story as well um, of toggling between the rabbi and her and the other rabbi and kind of going back and forth. You know, it is an interesting perspective. Maybe she wanted to get pregnant. I think that's that could certainly you know, be an issue. It comes up, um, it comes up now also, like there's, there's a concept called halakhic infertility, which is about um, people that have difficulty getting pregnant because of the time that their bodies happen to ovulate still being within the window of when they're not um, able to have sex with their husbands, if they're still in Nita. Um, so it's, it's a really plausible, you know, question. And I think it's still, applies in terms of like her own sexual assertiveness um yeah and you're right she didn't confront the rabbi right she just said like i'm gonna go to someone else right like it's almost like not gonna waste my time on you moving on right and like she just she's so eager to get the answer um that she wants and yes you are right about the wine um so she is she is a bold woman after my own heart um like this yalta lady um and the last line of, of this story, right, which is that um, he did it on his own. He did it because of his own traditions. Like it wasn't because of what she said. It wasn't because he had this thing in his eye. He, he must have changed his mind. He did it on his own. And I think it's indicative of the rabbis not wanting, certainly not wanting to rely on Yalta, um, but changing their position like he did it because he wanted to like I read that with a little bit of a wink like really he did it because he wanted to no but but they don't want to make it seem like she got her way and convinced him it, to do the ruling to make the ruling that he did and it removes the power that Yalta had in the story and I think it also reflects that same rabbinic anxiety about allowing her to be right about sex um even when they know they need to rely on women, right? She could have, she could have just said, there was no blood, what blood, right? But she doesn't, she says, and they have to trust her on that, that there is some. So there's like this hard thing of like trusting her, but not trusting her so much or all the way. And they're stuck in that. They really are. Um, I think they also have some anxiety about um, a woman appearing more learned, than a man of being like, no, I know that this blood is actually okay. Um, and so some kind of mistrust in, in her. But similar to the other stories, and I kind of want to end in this, is that they don't say that she's wrong. In none of these stories 
do they explicitly chastise the women? Do they say they should not have done what they did? They, you know, they don't, they don't make those kinds of claims. Um, and I find it really interesting because if they wanted to, they would, right? Nothing is stopping them from saying, and she was wrong. She shouldn't have Karuta. She should not have seduced her husband or she should not have brought the blood, right? They say, how could she have, right? But, um, you know, but it's interesting actually in that last story, they don't say, how could she have brought the blood to another rabbi? They say, how could a colleague rule differently than his colleague, right? They don't even put any blame on her there. And so- you know, and these stories, um, these last two about Mita, I think I said this before, that they use that halachic system to get what they want, right? One story, it's in order to have sex. One story, it's in order to not have sex. Um, and so they, but they use the system, which I think is is a really interesting phenomenon. Um, so I want to bring it together with a few of my own observations and then would love to open it up to hear your questions. You can, I can take yourself off mute to ask, you can put it in the chat. Um, but a, a few of these things, you know, so I started off saying, I'm curious about what this means about the rabbis, the rabbis who wrote these stories, the men, the male rabbis who wrote these stories and what it says about them. So I'm curious to explore that with you a little bit. Um, and also realizing that in all of these stories about women, the women are portrayed as like deceitful or lying or masking themselves, disguising themselves. And so there is that really subversive nature in the way that the men portray the women. And I just think that that is a, a thread that's worth noting in that. Um, and I think there's something here also about the rabbis using women to articulate what they cannot or do not want to say about themselves that like they're it is it is human to be sexual it's not a bad thing we don't need to condemn them and judaism doesn't condemn that and they know that and yet it's like this anxious thing that lives inside of them and so i think that they they sort of want to push it away but they also know that they want to be sexually engaged people, right? The first story we start off, he, the the very first tefillah, the prayer out of his mouth is for God to keep him from engaging with his Yetzir Hara, right? He knows he has those impulses. So like in writing these stories about women, are they playing out something um, that's from themselves, but playing it out on the other? Like if I, if I say it about someone else and not me, then it's not really about me, but maybe I want it to be about me. Maybe I'm telling these stories in a way because it's something that I gravitate towards. And finally, I think by writing these stories about women in this way, maybe they're also saying a little bit that they are okay with their women being sexually assertive because, right, they never tell them that they're wrong. Um, and it gives the men some of what they want. Um, and so they, I think, feel really conflicted in that way. They're figuring out who they are, right? And they're writing to figure it out, writing these stories, crafting them to to figure it out. And they're in this conflicted position where they want to choose sex, 
And they know that sometimes they should, but they don't want to be like that Roman version of masculinity of someone who's like sex obsessed. Um, but they also don't want to say that that's who they are. So they put it on someone else and they craft these stories It's men who are crafting these stories. Um, and I just think it's so enriching to think about these rabbis that we study so often, right? The rabbis say, the rabbis say, we study these texts about rabbis, but to see them as holistic human beings, right? They were full individuals with full lives, with relationships. And I love being able to dive deeper into that. So I'm happy to open up to questions. I see there are some things in the chat. Thank you so much, uh, Rabbi Sarit. That was such a great presentation. And yes, we'd love to open it up to questions. I see there's already a couple hands raised and there were a few questions from Sarah uh, that came in in the chat, which I saw first. So maybe if you want to pick one of, there were a few questions from her there. Maybe if you want to pick one to answer and then we sure, can. Let me read. I can't, I have a hard time there. reading the chat while presenting. So let me look at it now. Totally. Let me research. Did you learn what you wanted to learn about the rabbis and she become more curious about women's roles during the time of the Talmud? If so, how have you satisfied that curiosity? How does your role as both a woman and a rabbi inform your interest in these types of stories? Tractates are there. Um, okay, so there are a lot of stories. Um, there are a lot of stories about women and sex, and there are a lot of ways that the rabbis write about sex. These three stories come from a master's thesis that I wrote. Um, and so these are only three, but there's a whole, I had to choose which ones to bring for today. And as you probably noted, I spoke rather quickly. So there are others. Um, and it's interesting because the rabbis write a lot about women and they write a lot about women and sex and they write a lot about women and Nita. So there's a lot there. I would say it both satisfied my curiosity and made me want to learn more. I think, you know, there are a lot, there's a, a tendency that a lot of, um, people have when learning some of these texts about rabbis to think, excuse me, like, oh, they were so denigrating towards women. Or can you read this as a feminist and really take seriously what the rabbis wrote? I see a lot of this as sociological and it doesn't offend me to read ways that they wrote about rabbis. I think it's right. They lived in a certain time and I find it so interesting to learn these kinds of stories that help me understand their broader thinking um, and being a part of their project, right? Like us studying Talmud, we are part of the project that they are writing in. And I, I find that to be so enriching and connecting to more elements of their life and understanding how they thought about women and other people. I just find it to be um, an enriching exercise. So yes, curiosity and and I want more. And so I keep studying Talmud. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we can go to Susanna next and then Stuart and then Martin. Yeah, I thinking back, you know, like re rethinking the first story, I think that the Talmud is uh, criticizing the rabbi who was, um, who was praying that he should not have his Yetzirah uh, because in the end he dies. So it's like, I feel like it, they're saying, like, you know, this is not the way you should have been. That, and, and, and then you, you came over, you know, and then you ended up thinking that you were going to the prostitute, which you didn't do. So it, it's like, I, I think it, it, you know, it's kind of turning the, the whole situation on its head, saying, like, this is not the way to be. Look what, look what happened. You, you did something that you thought was wrong, and in the end you died. So you shouldn't have been doing, you know, you shouldn't have started out the way you started out. 
Yeah. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it goes even before the moment where we enter into the story, which is that it seems pretty clear from the wife's reaction that they haven't had sex in a long time. Right. And so I think it's also a critique of that, right? Because his, his tefillah to God is right. Keep me from my sexual impulses, basically. And if that's how it's gone, well, he's that's philosophy has been working right and so and i think i think it's also a critique of him right we could we could look at that text and say who is the person here behaving poorly well fr- just from a face value right if it's like the person who's masking and tricking and s- seducing like they're the bad guy in the story but i think it's actually turning it on its head a little bit to say no, that's not how you should be with your wife, right? You shouldn't be abstaining for that long. You shouldn't be praying that you don't feel sexual urges, right? And in the end, that's what's going to get you, right? And you spend so much time studying in the bait midrash. Maybe you need to actually pay attention to what's home as well, right? And and I think that you're right that there's a strong critique of him in that story. Right. And I I read that first story uh, in a similar way. I think it's a, it's a, it's a polemic against rabbis acting like monks, and so maybe in a way a polemic against, you know, the uh, the church too. It's uh, nothing evil about you know engaging in sex with your wife. As a matter of fact, it's a mitzvah, you know, to please your wife. So, uh, if I recall correctly, in the Book of Numbers, uh, for example, Miriam faulted Moses for withdrawing from uh, Zipporah. Um, you know, so that was, you know, that was a flaw, you know, or or an error, you know, on Moses' part mm-hmm. uh, way back, you know, in, in Tanakh, you know, well before, you know, the Talmud. So, you know, it, it's it's not news. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I often remind myself of that it's easy to forget as we're studying the rabbis and their writing is that they operated in such a different time and not just to say, oh, their context was different, but they're, um, they're their social context was so different in that they were really figuring out who they were as a people, right? And part of that entailed necessarily differentiating themselves from others. And so underneath a lot of these texts are these messages of not just who we are, but who are we not, right? And I am not like a monk. I am not the Roman uh, right version of masculinity, right? And I am also not this, um, you know, person that glorifies abstinence. That's not who we are as Jews. And I think they're, they're crafting this to say some of like, what do we want our attributes to be as a people? Is this right? This is just a couple of hundred years into rabbinic Judaism. And how do we want to live? What do we want to be important to us? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Martin, would you like to ask the question? Uh, Wouldn't the fact that the setting is in the garden which goes back to the Garden of Eden, wouldn't the average reader of that section be reinforced in the idea that a woman is a temptress not to be trusted and reinforce the ideas that menstrual blood had magical powers and had to be carefully regulated? The second part, I'm not so sure, but I think the first part of what you said in terms of comparing, like when we read that it's in the garden, should our, should our, you know, our flag go up for Garden of Eden? I think so. And, you know, the temptation that happens there, I think you're right. And I think that it kind of makes their final point all the more powerful 
because they're saying you should be thinking seduction. You should be thinking temptation. The garden, right, is where things go wrong. And yet, right, it's not how we're going to end this story. And, you know, there is the, do any of you remember what she asks him to bring her? Pomegranate. The pomegranate, exactly. The fruit, the fruit. Correct. And pomegranate is Is, a symbol of fertility. Yes. Right? So when she asks him to bring her that, she's also saying, give me more. Right? It's not. And so I think you're absolutely right. we're, We're meant to read this also as seduction, temptation. Yeah, I think you're right. One other small point. I had understood that in the discussion of various Uh, sexes and genders, that the definition of an ish, a male, was tied to the fact that the ish either had to father a a child or have no anatomic impediments to fathering a child in the future. Was there any such concept, you know, for the woman? Did she have to attain a status of motherhood or not have any impediment to being a mother? to be called an Isha? Um, It's a good question. I don't know the technical, you know, answer to that. I I don't think so. What I do know is that there are texts about if a woman and a man are married and she is not able to have children for a certain amount of time, that there there could be grounds for them separating. Um, Now that's, that doesn't affect like if she's still referred to as a woman i think she is but i think there's an understanding that that might not be the right union if that thing isn't coming to fruition thank you um that about takes us to our time so um thank you so much uh, rabbi sri for joining us today it was a pleasure to have you um before we wrap up just want to let everyone know about two events we have next week on wednesday we'll be joined by professor Aton fishbane for the first part of a five-part mini-series on self and mystical identity in 16th century kabbalah Um, And then on Thursday, we will be hosting Michael Weil for Jews on the Move, the geographic dimension of Jewish survival in North America. So hope you can all join us for those as well. Um, And thanks again for being here. Thanks for having me. Great to learn with all of you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.